0: Welcome to Zooming In, a show about the lives and feelings of regular people who are like you and me, people seeking connection and love, people who are just muddling along trying to be human. I'm your host, Sason Kim Simung.
1: I came to Perth uh, from Burma in 1994 with my family. Uh, we migrated here.
0: Chris isn't a refugee. He's a migrant. His family joined a rich diaspora that is four generations deep. For Chris, living in a new country wasn't that jarring. There was a lot that was new, but the receiving community of Burmese that was already living here made a lot of other aspects feel familiar. There was food, there were ceremonies, there were cultural celebrations, and of course, there was language. Refugees are people who leave after a disaster has struck their nations. Chris and his family left before Burma was engulfed in chaos. Their story has been about watching their country implode from a distance.
1: So the story of my family is that my great-uncle, who had been living here, Uh, since the 70s. It worked to sponsor both our family but also our extended family network as well. So over the course of a few years in the mid-90s, there were a lot of us who migrated out here. Um, So I've grown up in Perth, spent most of my formative years here. Um, Since then, I've made a number of trips back to Burma, especially in my sort of teenage, you know, later adult life. So the connection to Burma for our family, is a strong one, um, and that's primarily due to the large diaspora community we have here in Perth. I believe there are about four generations of Burmese immigrants who have migrated here since the 1960s, which was when the military coup took place. Very rich uh, diaspora here. And also I think language comes into the frame as well. So when I'm with my family, particularly speaking to my parents or aunts and uncles, I automatically revert back to Burmese, and despite the imperfections of my Burmese language, it's a lovely way to actually reconnect. I think language is that real uh, connective t- strand to the culture, the place from which you're from.
0: The community Chris was raised in wasn't perfect. As Chris says, at the social gatherings, there was sometimes a bit too much alcohol. Chris thinks this is largely because of the trauma that so many in the diaspora, particularly his parents' generation, carried with them from Burma.
1: And you know, and I suppose part of the serious side of that really is um, uh, reflecting now certainly is, uh, I think a large part of that came from how incredibly hard their lives were here as well. So not so much for my generation, who were really the beneficiaries of, of uh, my parents' generation, but certainly my, my parents and aunts and uncles, all of the relatives more or less settled into labour intensive jobs, you know, a lot of factory based roles. There was certainly, I think, a distinction in the experiences that we had between the generations.
0: Many people have traumatic memories of moving to Australia. That wasn't Chris's experience. He had a newish but relatively large community that he was arriving into, and he was young enough that everything just seemed like fun. He didn't know how to speak English when he first got here, but he had this love of language and of learning.
1: I think it had always been there. Even when I was in Burma, I was always an avid reader. I lived next door to a, I suppose, the equivalent of a library where they had uh, comic books, you know, that they lent out on a sort of nightly basis. So I was always an avid reader then. Um, And then when I came here, once I'd sort of managed to have a bit of a grasp on English, um, and I went through a really great ESL program. I remember um, I had a, a wonderful ESL teacher, Mrs Gilmore. And I think that really cultivated my love for books and stories. I think it all started there. She'd give a tremendous energy to those classes by reading out stories wasn't just teaching language, but it was also feeding the imagination, I think. And I remember vividly sort of coloured children's books. I can't remember their titles, but I do remember, you know, just sort of what they look like. And I remember my first day at, uh, in class where I had no idea what was going on. I didn't really speak a word of English. And I think my first word of English that I learnt properly here was the word colouring. But I misinterpreted the term, I uh, misapprehended the term and uh, thought coloringing, you know, so that was my first English word English word misappropriate, misappropriated coloringing
0: Chris's parents were big proponents of education. His dad worked in a factory, and his mum dedicated her full attention to her three
1: kids. yep, so I've got a brother and sister. Mum was a full-time parent at that stage, so she'd look after all of our school pickups, drop-offs. With my dad, we saw less of him because he was the one who was the breadwinner, you know, working long hours in the factory to to support the family. Mum particularly supported, I think, us to be proactive readers. You know, I think they saw books as um, an entry point to English, but also to the opportunities of of what that represented in terms of knowledge, um, culture education, and later on, a projected sort of career pathway. So she'd always um, encouraged us to read. And I remember in the 90s, you used to have these things called book clubs at school, which were paper catalogs of books that you could order through class. She'd always made sure that to order each of us a book, each time that, that came along, that was always, you know, around one, um, you know, once a term or so. But that was really, yeah, another way of fostering that, that love of reading, that love of stories.
0: Chris did well in school and he built a life in Perth and the love of stories that he had had in his village as a little kid and the love of reading that Ms Gilmore had encouraged in him remained strong. He went on to complete a PhD in English. In 2000, Chris's family was able to visit Burma.
1: So my family's first trip there was in 2000, end of 2005. Um, So my whole family went back to Burma for the very first time. Over 10 years um, after, I, I actually didn't make that trip because I I stayed back to look after the family home. But, yeah, so it was certainly a decade after we first left, um, and I know that that was hugely important milestone, for, particularly for my parents. Mum had been dreaming of going back to Burma, um, you know, and as so ha- happens due to, you know, economic considerations and stuff, it's just very difficult to go back. So going back, that was so that was their first time. My first time going back was in 2009, and I went back with my parents for the first time.
0: Chris loved it. So much about Burma felt familiar. But, of course, there were also differences.
1: We went back for about five weeks, I think, and after about three, four weeks, uh, I'd started to feel like I, I missed Perth. In terms of what I missed, I suppose it was some of the the space, the sense of personal space, and the sort of independence as well. It's not that independence doesn't exist there, but, you know, it's sort of on a spectrum. So, yeah, so in short, yeah, I, I did feel a little bit like an outsider.
0: He was also able to see how much his social relationships and the value system that he had 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 been shaped by Burma.
1: And, and funnily enough, I think um, certainly among um, you know our generation, I'm, I'm the oldest of my generation here in terms of my cousins and stuff, and I've, I've held on to probably some of those values in a maybe a slightly more palpable way, that sense of familial obligation. I think something that's lovely about that part of the world or in other parts of the world is the sense of collectivism as well. You know, Here, I think being in the West, we're um, conditioned to think, I think, in a very individualist way, in an independent way, with all of the good things that that comes with, particularly in terms of independence, um, creative thinking, critical thinking, all of those things are really important. What I retain from a place like Burma is the, the strong sense of familial not- uh, mindedness, obligation, the sense that you're also part of uh, a co-extension of a collective.
0: But the poverty in Burma was jarring, and the inequalities he saw were wider and deeper than anything he had grown up around here in Perth.
1: You always know about the political situation growing up, but I think it's a different experience when you go back and experience the things in person, even not necessarily overtly political things, but even everyday things like seeing, you know, young children during my travels there in different spectrums of poverty and the lack of opportunity. I think I think maybe that's if I can put my hand my finger on it. It's a lack of opportunity. Here I think when you grow up, irrespective of whatever social milieu you might grow up in and not to underplay the disadvantages and all that but there's across the board a certain aspiration i think you can you can have a certain level of that if you you know invest a certain amount of time effort that there are certain avenues of, of opportunity i think in burma what i what i started to get a sense of more is those opportunities are more reserved for people of affluence and of wealth and the the, the people below that spectrum, I suppose, is always sort of degrees of struggling.
0: After his first visit in 2009, Chris went back again in 2014. This time, Burma had changed dramatically.
1: So I went back first in 2009 and then the second time in 2014 and the differences between those two time periods were quite stark. Um, in 2009, the country was still relatively closed off. The um, tourism industry hadn't quite exploded in the way that it would later sort of post-2010. It's not that people can't claim their independence and you know their right to um, you know freedom of speech and all that, but I, I sensed it definitely a more caginess in that way, which I didn't discern later on when Burma had opened up to the world um, around 2011, 2012.
0: The year after Chris's first visit, Suu Kyi contested elections and won by a landslide, but because her children were foreign nationals, she could not take up the position of president. So this strange position was created, a compromise with the generals, who continued to exert a huge amount of power behind the scenes. And so she ruled the country using the official title of state counselor rather than president. This period is what many people now call Burma's golden
1: years. The transition that Burma uh, underwent from about 2010, 2011 um, was from decades of sort of isolationist military rule to a power-sharing arrangement. So in effect, the military still held um, the real power. but what it meant was and as it was cemented in the country's 2008 constitution was that it um, it allowed a, a parallel civilian government. But more or less, the military was still reserved a quarter of the country's uh, seats, and it still had total control over um, the country's security related departments. So more or less that it, it kept a tight rein on, on the country. But that said, you know, if we're um, reflecting on the optimism, the country had its first uh, free elections in decades in um, 2015, and Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, swept to power. You know, so that was yeah, remarkable. That was remarkable, and I think for Burmese, both uh, in country and abroad, you can understand, I suppose, why there was that widespread optimism and the real sense that there was a a turning point in the country's history, yeah.
0: Like all migrants who have a distant homeland, Chris kept a close eye on what was happening in Burma. He could see that the situation was deteriorating and this had a really big effect on the community here. But life continued in Burma with people trying to manage the political tumult. The darling Ansan Suu was getting criticized for the terrible situation of the Rohingya people, who were the subject of strong anti-Christian sentiment within the country. It was confusing trying to figure out what was happening and trying to figure out why. But then in 2020, Suu Kyi was re-elected with an even bigger majority than before. In early 2021, the crisis deepened.
1: So 1st February 2021 was effectively when, you know, Burmese people across the world woke up to the news of that effect military coup had taken place. So, you know, it started to receive news that Aung San Suu Kyi herself, but also senior ministers in her government, um, were arrested that very morning. I remember feeling like you know it was early morning on on the first, and just a sense of the wind being completely taken out, and a horrible sinking feeling that we were on the cusp of you know a sense of deja vu. I don't think anyone could have maybe precipitated the extent of civil conflict and suffering at that point necessarily, but I think that in that very moment, I could really I think we could all sense that this was a a seismic event.
0: For Chris and his community here in Perth, things felt really bad.
1: If I can talk about what that feels like, I think, for, and this is not just for myself, but also I think for all Burmese who tend to be living overseas as part of a diaspora community, looking in, it's exactly that sadness. And the sadness, I think, more than anything else, is, is for the people there and the country. And it's particularly, I think, more galling this time around because it comes on the back end of about a decade of promising reform reform that was wasn't perfect but nevertheless we had seen some reform and some steps in that in that direction the sadness is for them and of course when you're bombarded with um with news of all the atrocities that are happening you know on the ground the killings the detain detention the torture and then you bring uh, covid as a backdrop into it so earlier this year you know Burma through went through a, another wave of covid And we had family members and friends, particularly among the elderly, you know, who were, you only had to look at Facebook or social media to get a sense of the fact that people were, you know, literally running out of oxygen. They were uh, seeking oxygen supplies and putting, you know, messages. And I think, no doubt, we're the lucky ones here uh, looking in, but I think that certainly has a toll as well.
0: There has been a coming together that Chris hasn't quite seen before.
1: One of the things um, that I've seen post February in the Burmese community in Perth is just how much everyone has rallied together in support of it. So I, I suppose the, the, the best way to counter that sense of helplessness, that sense of sadness is to try to spur yourself into action and uh, to try to support as, as best as possible the communities, you know, um, ethnic groups, etc. cetera, um, that you have there. So uh, we've had a series of fundraising, you know, activities, food fates, concerts, as well as political uh, rallies Um, where we've had a buy-in also of some politicians here, because we do need our politicians to advocate, you know, at the federal level in terms of what Australia's response might be.
0: For Chris, as a member of the Burmese diaspora, the current situation hurts. It's not just that he can't go back and visit friends and family. That's not easy. But there's a bigger, more heartbreaking story that's unfolding here. A story that brings with it a certain kind of heaviness. In April, after the coup, protesters took to the streets. Most of them were young and committed to building a brighter future. They did not want to go backwards to the closed society of the early 2000s. One of them, Pan E. Pugh, was an ardent supporter of the pro democracy movement, and she had made several TikTok videos of herself singing pro democracy songs. Fearing for her safety, her mother, Tida San, didn't let her join the street protests. It wasn't enough to protect her. Pan was inside her house when a bullet cut through a bamboo wall in her home. It killed her and left a hole in the wall. It was the size of a pencil tip, a tiny reminder her mother didn't need. In the months since Penn's murder, Burmese diaspora communities around the world, not just here in Perth, have returned repeatedly to Penn's murder as a symbol of the horror of the situation that is unfolding in their country. Chris, as always, has turned to the page to process his feelings. For him, the words of Burmese poet Min San Wai capture perfectly what he's felt since February. The poem is called Hole, and it's been translated from Burmese to English by Coco Tet.
1: There's a hole the size of a pencil tip in the bamboo wall of our house. Not so long ago, little daughter piled thanaka on her cheeks and disappeared into that hole. She's gone for a long time. Mother can't wait any longer. She peeps into the hole and finds herself looking down a gun muzzle. In the background is a gala dinner, where Myanmar, in blood and gore, is chopped up and served. At the top of the grand table sits the pagoda donor sipping a glass of little daughter's blood. The dead wail in the darkness outside. Mother passes out, repeating, my little daughter, my little daughter. Father gets curious and looks into the hole. Family members take turns peeping into that hole. Today, each and every person in this country has a hole the size of a pencil tip in their chest.
0: Chris's ability to find the right words to express the distress of a nation he left when he was really small is pretty remarkable. It's also not unusual. He is the product of a diaspora whose heart is forever connected to Burma, and he's a product of his neighbourhood.
1: I think we grew up in a part of Perth, the northern sort of northern suburbs, where uh, there was a, um, a large population of different immigrant backgrounds. I think the question of integration is partly about your capacity to see yourself in whatever dimension that might be reflected in others around you speaking not just in terms of Burmese, but when you are able to relate to and form friendships with you know, other immigrant children who had recently arrived, I think that makes the connection certainly easier, in addition to also those friends of mine who were born here. So certainly a lot of my Vietnamese friends were born here. Um, so I think that certainly made the, connected, the sense of connectedness stronger. So I'd, yeah, so I'd, I'd, I did feel the sense of integration.
0: Chris has got a clear sense of who he is in the world, and it comes not from living in two worlds, but in having learned from an early age about the power of community Belonging to a diaspora means not that you belong elsewhere, but that you're connected to your homeland. Chris has no doubts about his voice and about his rights as an Australian to call on his government to support democratic change in Burma.
1: Um, Because I often get asked, you know, how how, how can, you know, by friends, how can we help? How can, uh, one of the ways you can do that is, you know, by reaching out to and connecting with people in those communities here. But also take, by taking an interest, I think that's the, the thing with any type of, you know, diaspora community is by, if you take that interest, if you can encourage that, I suppose, that visibility, you know, I think that that can make a difference for the people who are here, who are also then trying to make a difference for the people there.
0: Chris is an activist. He uses stories and poetry to fight for the country that he left when he was little. The country that keeps the biggest part of his heart, even to this day. For Chris, this isn't just about national identity. It's about wanting every child to have the same opportunities he had. The opportunity to read, to learn, to be part of a community. The opportunity for, as he says, colouring in their world however they choose. This podcast was produced by the Centre for Stories on Wajak Noongar Buja in Western Australia with generous funding from Lottery West. The Centre for Stories believes in storytelling as a way to build more inclusive communities. Special thanks to our storyteller for this episode, Chris. And to our production team, executive producer, Kara Jensen-McKinnon, audio engineer, Mason Velios. Scripting and interviewing by Sison Kim Simang and Claudia Mancini. Head to centerforstories.com to listen to more stories or to make a tax-deductible donation. Thanks for listening.